Father, thank you for promising that you always accomplish what you send your word to do. And so God, we pray that your word would come to our hearts and that it would stir a greater love in our hearts for you, that it would break down any barriers between us and you. God, we just want to love you more. Would you do that in our hearts this morning through the power of the Holy Spirit? Would you speak to us, we pray? In the name of Jesus, amen. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. In Luke chapter 18, we saw the story of the rich young ruler, and something fascinating happens that you may not have thought much about. But after the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and runs up to him and asks this question about eternal life and then turns away sorrowfully, somebody comes to Jesus who had an experience that maybe is a little similar to Leo's experience. It's Peter who often speaks up in moments like this. And in Luke chapter 18 and verse 28, Peter says this. Peter said, see, we have left all and followed you. Jesus, I gave up my Porsche. Jesus, I've given everything. Jesus, I'm not holding anything back from you. What's in it for me? What's going to happen to me, Jesus? Because I see the rich young ruler sad, but Jesus... I've given you everything, so what's going to happen now? Look at what Jesus responds in verse 29. So he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. What is Jesus promising here? Is he promising that when we surrender something to him, when, that, that after Leo has, has sold his Porsche, that, that God's going to give him five Porsches in return before the second coming, and that, that he's going to be able to enjoy that, and that maybe he's going to even have, a, a, now he's going to get a, a jet, because it's going to be even better than that. You know, there are televangelists who would tell you how important it is that a minister of the gospel would have their own Learjet, and multiple of them. Is that what Jesus is promising us here? He says you'll receive many times as much, more than what you had given up. And in the life to come, eternal life. It's fascinating because Jesus doesn't stop there. In verse 31, it says, Then he took the twelve aside. So he he often would say things to the crowd in this, this general way. And then he would take the disciples and he would say, Okay, now I need you guys. You guys just come over here and we're going to, We're going to talk a little bit more about this. We're going to talk in a little more detail about this. So in verse 31, uh, verse 29, it says, Assuredly, I say to you, oh, sorry, verse 31, that's where we were. He says, behold, he says, I want you to look, look at this. We are going up to Jerusalem. Now at this point, they are in the valley of the Jordan. They are near Jericho. And he's saying, look, we are going up to Jerusalem. And all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things which were spoken. 
Here the disciples have just been promised that they're going to have all of this wealth, all of this reward for following wholeheartedly after Jesus. And then Jesus tells them, okay, by the way, we're headed up. It's Passover time. And as we go up to Jerusalem, when we get there, here's what's going to happen. They're going to deliver me over to the Gentiles. They're going to spit on me, mock me, scourge me. They're going to deliver me over to death. And then three days later, I will rise again. And to the disciples, it's like Jesus is speaking gibberish. They have no clue what Jesus is talking about. It makes no sense to them. They thought that they saw things clearly. They thought that they understood. But something is holding them back. Something keeps them from seeing what Jesus is really up to, from fully understanding. And the gospel continues right on after this to explain a little bit, I believe, through the illustration of a story. Then it happened, verse 35, as he was coming near Jericho, that a certain blind man sat by the road begging. Can you picture it? It's a hot Palestine afternoon. And there, blind Bartimaeus is by the road, and he is begging for money. He's done this day in and day out. He's been there hoping that somebody would come by and give him just what he needs. And as he's there begging, verse 36, and hearing a multitude passing by, he asked what it meant. I want to start here by thinking about this multitude. There is a multitude who is going up to the Passover. There is a multitude surrounding Jesus. Here this group of people are traveling together to this special feast that points them to who Jesus is. Any one of them at this point could experience the gifts of healing and power that Jesus has to offer. Any one of them could experience Jesus' goodness. But they are simply milling along on the road and traveling along as if there's just a simple person with them. They are blind because, in fact, look at what those with the blind Bartimaeus say in verse 37. So they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. Now, something interesting to do this afternoon, just go to a Bible concordance or, or to a Bible program and search for the term Jesus of Nazareth. This occurs a number of different times, but it's fascinating to see that the majority of times that this occurs, in fact, I would argue that actually every time that this occurs, it occurs in the context of doubt. Somebody not really understanding who Jesus is. For example, the first time in the Gospels that it appears, it appears in the Gospel of Matthew, when the servant girl is saying to Peter, surely this guy was with Jesus of Nazareth. She's not believing that Jesus is the Son of God. She's not believing that Jesus is the Messiah. She's just there, one of the crowd who's there at the trial, and she's saying, Peter was there with Jesus of Nazareth. Then you have the time in Mark chapter 1 when the demons declare, Jesus of Nazareth is the one who's doing these things. What are you going to do to us, Jesus of Nazareth? Demons use this term, Jesus of Nazareth, on multiple occasions. Jesus of Nazareth is a term that's used when Philip comes to uh, tell Nathaniel that he's found the Messiah. And he says, and his name is Jesus of Nazareth. It plants this little seed in Nathaniel's heart. And Nathaniel's like, can anything good come from Nazareth? Is there any possibility that this really could be the Messiah? Do you see what 
these people are saying. They're saying, yeah, this guy is coming by. His name is Jesus, and he's from Nazareth. There's no real hope. There's no real belief. There's no real expectation in the crowd that surrounds Jesus. It reminds me of recently when I was on a trip. I, a couple weeks ago, I went back to Maryland for a, some meetings and as I was headed out on the trip, I was trying to decide what I should do, how I should pack, and I decided that I was going to take my clothes for the one-day meeting in this little handy a carry-on bag that my uncle gave me. It's really nice because you can put your hang-ups in it, and then you can roll, it around, uh, roll the clothes around it, and you can put your shoes inside of it, and then you can just carry this onto the plane with you. So I pulled up to the airport, I walked inside, and as I was waiting there in line, there was a guy who was getting upset with the gate agents. He was actually went up to the front and was yelling at them about something about being in line. And obviously he was having a really bad day. And I thought, well, too bad for him, but hopefully his day goes better. Well, we went and we got on the plane. And as we're getting on the plane, they tried to get me to check my handy dandy carry on bag. And I thought to myself, no, I'm not going to let them do that because I don't know what's going to happen. Maybe my clothes will get wrinkled in there or something as they jam it under the airplane. So I'm going to take this with me, make sure that I have it. So I take it onto the plane, and as I go into the plane, I'm looking really carefully, and I find an overhead bin. Whoa. I didn't throw it, because that would wrinkle the clothes, right? So I set it in the overhead bin, and I put it up there in the overhead bin, and then I, I sat down in my seat, and as I sit down in my seat, here comes this guy. I'm like, wow, he's on my plane. And then his wife comes and sits in the window seat, and I'm in the aisle. I thought, oh, okay, uh, Excuse me, sir, would you like to sit here? Where's your seat at? And he said, uh, it's back there. You really want to trade with me? I said, sure, I'll trade with you. He's like, wow, it's really nice of you. My name's Tony. And I shook his hand, and then I went back, and I sat next to this lady, and it opened up this conversation because she, her first thing that she said was, thank you so much for not letting that guy sit next to me. <laughs> that guy is, and she used some words that weren't necessarily Christian, but as we engaged in conversation, I pretty soon learned that she was a Christian and that we had a lot of things in common. And as we were talking about things, she was here working with NASA and was headed back to Florida. She travels back and forth quite often. I began to pray, Lord, what do you want me to do to, to share more about what I believe is important to your heart from the Word of God? Anything that I could share with her today? And I didn't feel like God was telling me to say anything, but I had in my backpack the book uh, by, about Desmond Doss. And as I pulled that out, I thought, you know what, I'm just going to read this for a little bit and then I'll set it on my lap and maybe she'll, she'll say something about it. And as we landed, I set the book in my lap and was looking around in the cabin and all of a sudden she said to me, I love that movie, Hacksaw Ridge. I watched that five to six times and I cried through it every single time. So we began talking about that, and pretty soon I said, well, here, you can have this. It's, it's his biography, and it gives a little few more details, and you might enjoy it. She's like, really? Thank you so much. I'm going to read this the rest of the trip. So I was excited, walking out of the plane, and as we walked out together, we were just talking about how good God is and what an inspiring life that Desmond Doss had lived, and we walked off the plane. Then when I got into, I believe it was San Francisco Airport, I put my headphones in and began walking around, just enjoying listening to uh, the Bible. Sometimes I like to pace around the airport, and I walk through all the different terminals. And about an hour later, I'm walking through the airport back to making a full loop to where I had gotten off, and I'm swinging my arms, and I'm just thinking to myself, what a beautiful day. 
Do you know that sometimes we can be going through life and we feel like everything's perfectly fine? We feel like we understand what's going on. We feel like we have a perfect uh, grasp on life. And though we may not feel as helpless and hopeless as blind Bartimaeus sitting by the road, we may, in fact, be incredibly blind. We may, in fact, not realize that we're in a world of trouble. Look at what happens in the story in Luke chapter 18 as we continue looking at the story. Verse 38, after he hears that Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, apparently blind Bartimaeus had some sort of knowledge of who Jesus is. Apparently he has some sort of expectation of the type of person that Jesus is because immediately in verse 38 it says, and he cried out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. This is a beautiful Thing that he cries out. He's not just saying, hey, that guy who's from Nazareth, this, this person who's a humble carpenter. But he's saying, Jesus, the son of David. What did it mean to be the son of David? Not a rhetorical question, but what is he saying by saying, Jesus, son of David? Any ideas? Who would the son of David be? A descendant of David? He would be the one who could be crowned king, who could be crowned as the Messiah. He's saying, Jesus, son of David, you who are the coming messianic king. He hears that Jesus of Nazareth is coming, but he cries out in faith saying, you have power. You are a king. You are somebody awesome. He sees in Jesus something that the crowd doesn't see, something that those standing by him do not see. And yet he's blind. And then he says, have mercy on me. You know, there's one thing to recognize that somebody's really good and has a lot of power, that they're capable of doing awesome things. And we might believe that about God and yet it not do us any good. But blind Bartimaeus believes something else about Jesus. He believes that not only is he a king, but that also he's merciful. (laughs) He believes that there's something there and he cries out to him. He says, have mercy on me. Continues in verse 39. Then those who went before warned him that he should be quiet. It's fascinating. This is a detail that's not brought out in Matthew, Mark, but it is brought out in Luke. That it's specifically those who are going before Jesus. This isn't just those who are going up to the Passover, but this is those who are part of Jesus' own group. This is those who Jesus has trusted to be his disciples, his followers. And, and as they are going up with him, here comes somebody crying out to Jesus, Lord, have mercy on me. And look at what they do. They warn him that he should be quiet. I don't know what your experience has been with church, with following after Jesus, with wanting to know him more. But you know what I discover? When, when we go to visit people and to say, hey, what took place? You haven't come to church in the past five, six years. You know what it always is? It's usually about people. 
They were hurt by somebody. Somebody said something to them or somebody did something to them and that hurt them. And so they haven't come back and they've allowed that to come between them and Jesus. Friends, the people closest to Jesus may say some of the most hurtful things to you. People in this church, unfortunately, may say things to you that I hope they don't realize it, but it may be hurtful to you. Look at how blind Bartimaeus responds. Here he is blind, begging. He's got nothing. He's got nothing to hope for except for that Jesus has something to offer him. And what does he do? They say, be quiet. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. He will not keep silent. And friends, if you won't keep silent, if you keep crying out to God, if you say, Jesus, I have to have more of you. I won't let you go until you bless me. Jesus, please just give me more of you. Have mercy on me. I'm longing for a closer walk with you. Jesus responds in powerful ways. Just look at what happens in the story. Verse 40, I love this. This is God on earth. He's got places to go and people to see. He's headed to Calvary. He's headed to Jerusalem, the triumphal entry. He's headed to Jerusalem to cleanse the temple. And then he's headed to the Garden of Gethsemane to take your sins on himself. And then he's headed to the cross. In the midst of all that on his mind, he hears some poor beggar crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Crying out again and again. And he sees the disciples telling him, look, just just stop making a scene here. And verse verse 40 says, so Jesus stood still. Don't pass that by. Do you have prayers that you're praying and you're wondering, does Jesus really hear? Do you have longings in your heart for more of Jesus and you're wondering, Is there ever going to be more of Jesus in my life? Do you have trials that you're facing and you're wondering, does Jesus really care about this? Does he even see what I'm going through? Keep crying out to Jesus, saying, Jesus, have mercy on me. And the God of the universe will stand still. He'll hush the angels around the throne and they'll say, do you hear that? That's my child down there. He's one that I died for. And, and she's crying out to me right now. She needs my help. She needs mercy. And heaven responds to your prayer of earnest entreaty. Not because it changes Jesus' heart. Do you think that, that what he cries out right here is changing who Jesus is or what Jesus planned to do that day? It didn't change that at all. It only opened up an opportunity for Jesus to do what he already longed to do in the blind man's life. Nobody else was crying out for mercy on that day, but this man gave him an open door. And when we give Jesus an open door, he cannot wait to walk through it. When we surrender all to him, he cannot wait to pour out his blessings into our life. Friends, the great reward that comes from surrendering all to Jesus is more of Jesus, a closer walk with Jesus. What was the hundred times more that was promised to Peter when he surrendered all? It was fellowship with Jesus. He got to walk with Jesus, to camp with Jesus, to be with Jesus day in and day out. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he had come near, he asked him saying, what do you want me to do for you. 
So I was walking through the airport. And as I walked past the gate where I had gotten off, I was swinging my arms and I was thinking about how nice it was just to be enjoying the Bible. And I thought, you know, why don't other people do this when they're in the airport? Why do they sit there in that seat when they could be focusing on Jesus? They could be, I wish people could be happy and enjoying. Wait a second. Why am I swinging my arms so freely? There's something missing right now. And suddenly panic took over my heart as I thought, those clothes that I was so carefully taking care of so that I'd have them at the meeting tomorrow, they are still in the overhead bin in that airplane. Sometimes in our lives, we feel like everything's going along fine, but God is longing to open our eyes to our true need, that we are desperately in need of something from him. In Revelation chapter 3, it says that there are people in the last days who think that they're rich and increased with good, but Jesus says, you're actually naked and blind and wretched and miserable. You don't recognize the need that you have. I'm outside the door knocking of your heart. If you would just say, Son of David, have mercy on me, I'd come in and I would lavish my love in your life. Well, I went to the first to the General United desk because I couldn't even remember for sure which gate I was at. And they told me, okay, you need to go down to gate 71A. So I quickly ran to gate 71A and I got there. It had been about an hour at this point since I had gotten off the airplane. I thought, I am in such big trouble. I've heard about how the people who clean the airplane, they just take stuff for themselves. So I don't know if that's true or not, but I'm pretty sure that this bag is history. And I was there. I went up to the desk to the gate agent and I said, okay, I left my bag on the plane that I got off of here. And she looked at me and she said, well, go to the baggage claim. I said, well, it didn't have a bag tag on it. I'm not sure how it's going to be there. And she's like, well, let me look at something on my computer. She's like, yeah, just go to the baggage claim. I said, okay. Are you sure it's going to be at the baggage claim? What? How would it get to the baggage claim? I'm pretty sure it wouldn't be there. I felt a little bit like blind Bartimaeus with a crowd and they're saying, no, sorry, can't help you. This isn't going to work out. Not today. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem and it's not going to work out for you today. But suddenly this other guy who was working behind the desk, he suddenly starts to listen and he walks over. He's like, what's going on? He, he just stood there and, and he listened to the story that I had to tell. And I said, I, I left it on the plane. He said, well, do you have your flight number? And so I said, okay, here's my flight number. And he just watched as she put the, the flight number in. And it was the plane that was there at that gate. And he said, well, I'll go and check on the plane. She said, no, there's no point. They haven't brought anything out. It's not on that airplane. He said, no, I'm going to go check it out. You just wait right here. And I'm going to see if his bag is there. So immediately I grabbed my phone and I started texting my family, okay, I need prayer right now because my bag's on the plane and I don't really want to buy clothes when I get to Maryland. I'm not sure what to do right now, but just pray that this guy is able to find the bag. The lady's really sure that it's not there. Well, in a few minutes, he came walking out, carrying my bag and telling that lady, you owe me. And I told him, you know what? Actually, I owe you because... You just saved me from a whole lot of trouble and hassles. Can I take you to breakfast? He said, no, no, don't worry about it. It's, it's no big deal. That man that day helped me, and he wanted to help me. He was earnest about helping me, and he had to go through barriers of a lady trying to stop him from helping me. That's the way Jesus is in your life. Jesus says, I've come to seek and to save that which is lost. I am earnestly working in your life. I'm doing everything possible to break down every barrier in your life that you'll allow me to break down with my love. 
If only, if only, you'll open up your heart like blind Bartimaeus and say, Son of David, have mercy on me. I will simply say to you, what would you have me to do? Blind Bartimaeus goes on to say, Lord, that I may receive my sight. He uses a word here for recover his sight. We know that he wasn't born blind, but he's asking to get his sight back. He says, God, I want to see again. I want my sight back. Then Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. He uses the word there, sozo, to save. He's saying, you've been restored. You've been through the faith that you have in who Jesus is, that he's the son of David, that he is powerful, and also that he wants to have mercy on you, your life is being radically changed. And when we come to believe that about Jesus, that he's the one that comes to seek and save the lost, that he's on our side, that he's wanting to do us good, that like Jesus says, it's his good pleasure to give us the kingdom. Then we begin to ask for bigger things. Then we begin to expect bigger things in our life. We actually believe that he can heal the blindness that has kept us from Jesus. Verse 43 And immediately he received his sight and followed him, glorifying God. I love how it records it in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. It tells us that when he heard that Jesus was calling him, and the people around him actually say in Mark's Gospel, cheer up, Jesus is calling for you. It says that he took off his outer garment and he took that outer garment and he threw it off and he ran for all that he was worth to Jesus because to blind Bartimaeus, Jesus meant everything. Jesus was more important than that cloak. Although he was begging for money and had so little, he didn't care anymore. He just wanted Jesus. And there's this beautiful promise that Jesus is coming back for those who are hopeful looking for him. Turn with me to First uh, John chapter 3. In First John chapter 3, John, one of the disciples who would have been there on that day, who recognized the value of seeing Jesus and how seeing Jesus led blind Bartimaeus to follow Jesus, to commit his life to Jesus, to get up, give up all to follow Jesus. In First John chapter 3, in verse 1, it John starts off just saying, see or behold. Just just look at this. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. Just look at it. Grasp it. Contemplate it. Look at this love that is life-changing. It's changed everything for me as John writing this letter. That we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in himself purifies himself just as he is pure. There's something powerful about looking to the love of Jesus. There's something life-changing about looking at the love of Jesus. In the Review and Herald, March 15, 1887, it talks about the difference between blind Bartimaeus and what he was able to experience from Jesus and the Pharisees who saw nothing of value there. 
It says the afflicted, suffering ones who sought Christ as their helper were charmed with the divine perfection, the beauty of holiness that shone forth in his character. That's what led them to cry out, have mercy on me, son of David. They saw in him something beautiful, something pure, something that they really wanted for their lives. But the Pharisees could see no beauty in him that they should desire him. His simple attire and humble life, devoid of outward show, rendered him to them as a root out of dry ground. He's just simply like Jesus of Nazareth. Just a a simple, humble carpenter. There's nothing special about him. And they missed the most beautiful thing ever. So today, looking at what John has asked us to do, to behold the love of God, to fix our eyes on who Jesus is, what is it that keeps us back from that? What is it that blinds us today? What can we learn from these disciples' experience that might help us to see how we are missing the point? The disciples are told so clearly by Jesus in Luke chapter 18 that that he's going to the cross. And this is actually the sixth time in the gospel of Luke that he has alluded to the fact that he's going to be put to death and he's going to rise on the third day. And yet it says they didn't get it. They couldn't see it. They couldn't grasp what is really going to happen. And for some reason, they just couldn't understand. What was it for the disciples? Well, the disciples knew that although Jesus was saying all these things, that full, what was going to happen was he was going to be crowned king. He was going to become Messiah. They learned it ever since they were little, that this is the way things were going to go and that he was going to come and free them from the Romans. So whatever weird things Jesus said, This had to be what was going to be the end result. They were looking for a political Messiah. I don't know if you've paid attention to the news over the past week, the past couple of weeks, the past couple of months, the past five years, but there is a lot of politics on the news. Have you ever seen that? Have you ever noticed that? In fact, sometimes you'll see little headlines saying, you're politic-free news for the week, and they'll have one little tiny paragraph about something that's not political. But the rest of absolutely everything that we read about is about politics. The disciples were looking for a politician. They were looking for somebody to save their nation. They were looking for somebody who was going to come and deliver them. And this blinded them. And friends, I'm not here today. Don't worry. I'm not here today to tell you you shouldn't be a Democrat or you shouldn't be a Republican. But I'm here today to tell you that those politicians will not deliver you. They don't have the answers to what you need. They cannot save this world. They will not bring peace to this planet like they hope to do. But there is a Savior. His name is Jesus, and he's the Son of David, and he's the King of Kings. And the good news is that we get to share with the world that he cares about the stuff that we're going through. And that he cares so much that he is coming on a rescue mission soon to deliver us. That he promised that though I go away and prepare a place for you, that I will come again to receive you to myself. There's coming and appearing. Jesus is coming back. And how did John describe it? John describes that in verse 2, 
of chapter 3 of 1 John, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. There's something about gazing into the face of Jesus that changes our heart. There's something about seeing that love and that mercy. The things that we dwell upon have a molding and shaping influence on our life. And if we are focused on what a politician can do for us, if we are focused on what the government is able to do in our lives, we are going to wind up empty. But if we are focused on Jesus Christ and what he can do in transforming my heart and your heart and my neighbor's heart, my friend's heart, if we're saying to people, hey, I have heard about Jesus coming back and I want for you to hear about it too. And we take this flyer to a friend and say, you just got to give it a chance. There's a whole lot of fear in the news. There's a whole lot of strange and crazy things going on. But I want you to have hope. And that's why I want you to come to the appearing. Or maybe you just want to sit down with somebody and say, hey, can I share a little bit with you about what Jesus is to me? Because as we see Jesus and his love for us, it changes absolutely everything. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 8, page 316, says this. In order to fix our eyes on Jesus, it's essential that we turn away from things that distract from that. We must turn away from a thousand topics that invite attention. There are matters that consume time and arouse inquiry, but end in nothing. In my own personal experience, when I was in high school, I began to listen to certain things and to begin to focus on certain people that I thought were especially important in the political world. And it began to do something to me where I began to write all of my college papers about how we needed to go do this and that and how we could change the world if only this person was elected president. And then I remember one day, my girlfriend and I, we were in college at this point, and I had gotten in debates in the, the, the dorm uh, lobby about, we'd have presidential debates going on, and I would be yelling at other guys about how, no, that was a bunch of, anyway, not good stuff that that candidate was saying, and we'd go back and forth arguing about stuff, and I was just sure that I knew all the answers. I remember driving along with my girlfriend on the road, and there's this car that went in front of us, And it had this bumper sticker that was trashing the President of the United States who I supported at that time. I laid on my horn. I had words to say to that person. I basically went into road rage over a political bumper sticker. I remember that my dad told me, you know, the world's not necessarily going to hold up to all of our expectations I was hoping at that point to invest in the stock market. I had all these high hopes. Clearly, the world was going in the right direction now. Real estate prices were rising. The stock market prices were rising. I told my dad, I am smart enough to invest and become a millionaire, and then I'll serve God later on. He had wise words. He said, things don't always go that smoothly. And the way that things are predicted, they're not going to end up like that. That was... 2000, uh, maybe five or four, 2004. I'm glad that I didn't put all my money in the stock market at that point because by 2008, the stock market had radically crashed. Real estate prices where I'd been dreaming of buying houses and flipping houses and doing all this to make money, all of it would have come to absolutely nothing. 
But thankfully, through my parents' influence, through other influences, I began to realize what I needed was to behold the love of God that was given for me. That I needed to fix my eyes on Jesus. That I needed to take the blinders off to think that salvation was coming from any other way but Jesus. Friends, we've talked about it over the past couple of weeks that there is nothing good that I can possibly do that will ever merit anything for my salvation. But Jesus says the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. God wants for us to experience what it says here. When he is revealed, we shall be like him for we will see him as he really is. We will know Jesus and we'll see him and we will be among that group in Isaiah 25 that will look up to heaven and will say, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him. I just want you to imagine that moment for a second. So I put a picture up on the screen. Just imagine Jesus coming back in the clouds. In that moment, we're told that there will be two groups of people. There will be those in Isaiah 25 who look up and they say, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him. He's coming back for me. That's my friend Jesus, son of David. Have mercy on me. I know that he's a merciful and loving God. And Revelation 6 tells us, that there will be powerful kings and rulers who will see him coming in the clouds and who will cry out in absolute terror because they've been so blinded. They don't understand who he really is and they run the opposite direction and they cry to the rocks to fall on them saying, who's going to deliver us from that guy who's coming back? There's going to be two different groups on that day, and you and I will be in one of those groups. Our neighbors will be in one of those groups. On that day, will we see in Jesus a merciful Savior coming back to redeem us? Or will we look at Him as the one that we need deliverance from? Friends, that's why I believe it's absolutely essential that we study the second coming, that we spend time diving into it and if you aren't planning to come to the appearing, I just want to encourage you that Sean Boonstra has a way of presenting things that are fascinating, that have a way of expanding our understanding and of giving hope. Last year at the Pale Horse Rides, I learned so many new things about Bible prophecy and so many things about history that I hadn't even seen before, and it's, it's done in a very professional, powerful way. But even if you don't do it through the appearing that starts this Thursday, study about Jesus, about his soon return, because he's coming back not to force himself on people, but he's coming back as a savior to everyone who's willing to accept him. I wanted to play something for you from Sean Boonstra of The Appearing. He has a little appeal to make to you this morning. Right now, there are people in your community who sense that something is wrong in this world. And that sense is growing every single day. There are people out there looking for hope. And even now, God's Spirit is moving over your town, preparing hearts to meet you. That's why your church has chosen to be a host site for The Appearing, an all-new five-part experience that shares our hope in the soon return of Christ. Each session highlights key Bible passages that dispel many of today's most popular myths about the last days and then reveals a future of hope. Look, this is going to be a lot of fun and a great way to engage the people who live in your community. So I have a simple question for you. Who 
are you going to invite? Is there someone God has brought to your life that needs to connect with your community of believers? Is there someone you know who might be ready to step forward in their spiritual journey? So who would that be? Who are you going to invite? As you and I prepare for this event, please join me in praying for the members of your community. Pray for the people God will bring through the doors of your church. Pray for the people you plan to invite. Pray that they will hear God speaking to their hearts and that they will discover God's plan for their lives. I I can hardly wait to see what God is going to do through you to reach your community for Christ. I'll see you at the appearing. That's Sean who will be doing the presentations. How many of you want to join me in praying for the appearing that people are drawn closer to Jesus through this event? Thank you so much, because it's so valuable that we take the time to pray for this, to ask that Jesus would reveal it to people who are longing for hope. How many of you want to join me on opening night to see what this is all about, to see what it's like, or to come to as many nights as you're capable of doing with your schedule? I encourage you, you being here, maybe you've heard things about the second coming before, maybe you're pretty convinced that I already know everything Sean Boonster's going to talk about, but your presence here will encourage somebody who's never heard this before to say, this is important. This church recognizes that this is valuable, that Jesus really is coming and that he is a loving Savior and that he does present hope. You being here will be meaningful to somebody else and have an impact on them accepting Jesus. So I encourage you to come also today, right after potluck, if you brought a change of clothes like we talked about in the email or not, you're welcome to join me either way. I'm going to go out at 1.30 to pass some of these out. We can do it in easy ways, dropping them off at doors or on cars. And then at 3 o'clock, Loran's going to be back here, and we'll meet back here. For those that like to go to lunch and come back, we're going to go out and share the, the plant-based meal flyer, and also those people that are interested will be sharing about the appearing. I covet your prayers for this. I, I also just want to encourage you, To remember what John says. Behold the love of God. Keep your eyes fixed on a merciful Savior. Times are going to get more and more crazy. And we need a trust that will cling to Jesus no matter what in this world. Christ's Object Lessons, page 394. We looked at it two weeks ago. It says this, By beholding the matchless love of Christ, the selfish heart will be melted and subdued. By beholding the matchless love of Christ. Do you want to behold the matchless love of Christ? I just want to invite you to stand with me. If it's your desire to say, Jesus, I want to see. Like blind Bartimaeus, I'm here saying, I just want my sight. I want to be able to see you. I want to be able to behold your love. Go ahead and stand if that's your desire to say, Jesus, I really want to see your love and I want it to change my heart. Father, we're just standing here before you saying, be merciful to us. Son of David, King of Kings, who gave your life for this planet, who loves us more than your own existence. We're here saying, would you give mercy to us? Would you increase our expectation, our hope about your soon return? Would you increase our confidence that you will see us through the time of trouble? Would you give us confidence that Jesus is a full and complete Savior? 
If it's your desire to just keep praying this prayer every day this week as it leads up to the appearing, Son of David, have mercy on me. Just raise your hand. Father, we raise our hands, just recognizing that we have need, that we need your mercy and we want to behold more of your matchless love. Thank you for revealing this to us more every day. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.